Ryan Open Science Podcast. I'm Emma Harris. I'm Luisa Bengtsson. And we're broadcasting to you from Berlin, Germany. Um, so we're talking to Vipke Hollerson. She's a science journalist and science editor at a um, daily newspaper, Welt, and Welt am Sonntag. And with Emmanuel Villar, who is a scientist at the Max Selberg Center for Molecular Medicine in Berlin. My name is Wiebke Hollesen. Uh, I'm a science editor at Die Welt uh, newspaper in Berlin. My name is Emanuel Weiler. I'm a scientist at the Max Selberg Center for Molecular Medicine in Berlin. Okay, um, so you guys know each other. Um, I wonder, um, is it something now that uh, happened through the COVID connection or did you work with each other before? <laughs> Uh, no, actually, it's due to the coronavirus that we met each other in person for the first time. I, we knew each other through Twitter before. So then Emmanuel started um, posting a lot uh, about a new virus. He has a really great blog about the situation. So I followed him more closely and I don't know, somehow we met in person. And why did you feel the the need to follow his blog or contact him? Um, um, I'm a science journalist, but before the pandemic, I wasn't really specialized in infectious disease or virology. As a science journalist for big newspaper, usually cover a lot of stuff. I covered health in general, medicine, uh, psychology, different other topics, but I wasn't really specialized on infectious disease. I have written about measles maybe sometime or about dengue, but I, it's not something we covered on a daily or even weekly basis before the pandemic. So when this um, pandemic started, we had to go much more in depth with all this virology and infectious disease and epidemiology stuff. So, of course, I was looking for good sources. Mm -hmm. And what other sources were you using for to access information? I guess Emmanuel is not your only source. <laughs> <laughs> no, of course he isn't. We look at all the new preprints and papers that are coming out like every day. I think <laughs> we try to look at them, but it's really difficult to not get lost in, in all this And then there are some scientists that are communicating in a more direct way with the public uh, through podcasts. There's this very famous German virologist, um, Christian Drosten, who really quite early in the pandemic started his own podcast where he explains uh, new research. Um, we try to talk to scientists as often as we can, to virologists, epidemiologists, but it's not always so easy because everybody wants to talk with them all the time, of course. So it's not always that easy to get access to them. We actually look a lot at scientific Twitter because many, many experts in the field, especially in the US and um, Great Britain are on Twitter and they post new research or discuss new research there. So it's lots of sources. 
Mm-hmm. So if I if I can summarize for myself, so it's um, so it's scientists communicating directly, mm-hmm. preprints, um, other published peer reviewed papers, of course. <laughs> yeah, of course. Okay, <laughs> but yeah, um, although that takes quite a while before you get yes. any news from there, so to say. But um, okay, and basically also social media channels. Um, yes. So this is not really like a classical, or am I just? Uh, in misconception of how science journal- journalism works, but that's not really the classical route, is it, to um, get information? Mm, social media has become more important now in the pandemic. Before, I it wasn't really like a big source, but we, yeah, normal times, let's say, the, our biggest source are the scientific journals, and we look all the time we look at their new research, what are they publishing, and if there's something that uh, s- seems interesting to us, then we try to reach out to s- other scientists and get an opinion on this paper or that. Or we start from everyday questions that we want to find answers to, and we start looking for scientists or experts who can answer those uh, questions to us. So that's like the more normal times, the ways that we... Yeah, we find our stories or we try to research our stories. So I also wanted to ask about uh, press releases because I know that uh-huh. every institute uh, is investing quite heavily okay, yeah. in in producing the press releases. Do they play a role? Yeah, yeah, I, for- I forgot them. But yeah, they do play a role. I mean, we get lots and lots of press releases every day. But if something really catches sometimes something really catches our eyes and um yeah they play a role but maybe not as big as a big role as institutes think it could be helpful for science journalists not to get as many press releases but to get the really important ones (laughs) i don't Mm. know if that makes sense but you're like drowning in press releases so it's hard to really find the really important and interesting stuff sometimes i mean we are reporting for a general public for like normal people on the street let's say mm. and they're really in, not interested in every um research like um i don't know the english word grundlagenforschung like every basic like basic, basic, basic research basic yeah. research so they're more interested in things that they can relate to or that play some role in their everyday lives. And that's, of course, what science journalists at a general news, at a newspaper like Die Welt focus on. So many press releases are not as important to us. As mm-hmm. Maybe it's really, really important basic research. And maybe we are, as science journalists, interested in this but we will not cover it because to our readers it's not it's not it's really hard to explain to our readers why this is important why they should care about this at this moment so yeah yeah i guess that's the classic uh, problem of basic research it's only yes. becomes interesting when uh, like now in the corona pandemic of all course. kinds of basic research becomes interesting related to the virus but maybe it wasn't mm. before because yeah or maybe it sometimes becomes interesting if there's a lot of basic research uh, being done on some subject and it starts to become more relevant because the finding has been replicated now many times, so it becomes more, more relevant. Mm. But it's 
we look for relevance for our readers, of course, and yeah, that they're, it's not a scientific publication or not even a release. It's not like a journal for the general reader, but who's really, really interested in science, but for normal people who are may, maybe a little bit interested in science, they are very much interested in their own health and their psychology and this kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. I was wondering also um, the preprints. So there's mm -hmm. been a lot of discussion about how preprints basically, um, I mean, exploded during, uh, because yeah. of the pandemic. Um, and um, in general, people, I think, agree that this is a good thing. Uh, but the bad side of it is basically it's too much information. Just oh, like yeah. too many press releases, too much information. Yeah. So how, yeah. Yeah, how it's do you really complicated with the preprints. It's really, really complicated. Because in this situation, everything changed. The interest of normal people, of our readers, really exploded. And suddenly they are interested, as you said, in basic research because they're desperate. They want to, this stupid pandemic to end. They want to find answers. They want to, they're lost in the situation and they're looking for answers everywhere. So, um, if there's a preprint coming out and it has something that sounds really spectacular, we are aware that it's, we as science journalists are aware it's only a preprint and we don't really know. It's, we know that it's not really in a state that should be reported yet. But on the other hand, it sounds really sometimes spectacular, really interesting for the readers. So we should cover it and everybody else is covering it. So it's really complicated situation. We try to explain to our readers in every story that it that is based on preprints, that it is based on preprints and what this means. But it's mm -hmm. a lot to ask of our readers to to understand this in detail because they see, oh, it's scientific research. It says this or that. So what is all the stuff about preprint? And maybe it's in the end not saying this or that so it's really complicated for, for our readers but we try to explain all the time that this is like a preliminary finding and we should be cautious but some people get some readers get really bored or angry with this mm -hmm. yeah they're okay. like scientists they change their opinion all the time ah uh, yeah the classic yeah, yeah and they do research all the time and this yeah, cancer is still not cured and yes, one day you cure it last week they yeah. said this and this week they're yeah. saying this so people get mm. angry because they have a basic understanding about the scientific process we tried to explain the scientific process also in some pieces in the beginning of the pandemic we did some pieces that try to explain the scientific process um so we try to give context to our readers so that they don't get as angry hmm. but it's a bit complicated yes yeah i mean you just said two things which i find quite interesting so uh the one is kind of like this inflated claim thing and the other one is chain reactions i, I take them one of the other so mm -hmm. um so you said basically that sometimes you report on preprint uh, stuff, so like yes, information from preprints, um, just because others also reporting on it yes. and you kind of have to react. So how does this chain reaction start? Because in the end, you, I mean, maybe you end up debunking the whole thing as well. Yes. So how, how does it work in practice, basically? How do you know that others are going to cover something or how? Yeah. Just I don't know if that others are going to cover something. I just see a news story popping up somewhere. 
And there are so many news outlets around the world. So, uh, and everybody in Germany, and I guess in other countries as well, uh, reads uh, English language newspapers and news outlets. So, I mean, every editor and every journalist. So if something pops up even in Great Britain or in the States and some news outlet, so somebody will also cover this in Germany because not in this pandemic, not only science journalists are interested in this news about coronavirus situation, because also many journalists who have never covered science before. So maybe there's a preprint and it has a really spectacular finding, but we think mm, it doesn't look quite this research isn't quite there yet. We don't want to report on this. But somebody in, I, I don't know, the Sun newspaper in Great Britain picks it up. <laughs> and then some mm. editor in Germany finds this and picks it up. And suddenly I see it if the story suddenly pops up. Or I, or we at the science um, department of the newspaper, we get calls from editors from the from other desks and they tell us, oh, we saw this really interesting thing at this British newspaper um, that, I don't know, there is a mutation of coronavirus and it's suddenly much more deadly. And there is a new study coming out. There, there was a new study that showed this and we are like, okay, um, I don't know. Then we try to look into it and often it's a preprint or it's not even a preprint, it's a press release or it's a tweet or something. But it's everybody is so anxious and so nervous about the situation and wants to find out as much as possible, as quickly as possible about this, the pandemic and the virus. And many people who have not covered science before are now trying to make sense of it. So a lot of things get mixed up. Hmm. But how how do you rep I mean how do you make sense of all this stuff because <laughs> is there is there a solution uh because I mean as you said I I there's been this ongoing talk about the crisis in science journalism that basically there are fewer and fewer properly yes. employed science journalists and yeah newspapers just put someone who's been doing political communication mm -hmm. maybe now cover science as if that would be yes. just as easy um and um yeah, I mean, is there a solution to it? Because this is like, this mm. is going to continue. I mean, even if the pandemic is over, there will be other topics and uh, the same kind of uh, fight for attention will continue, right? Yes, of course, that will always continue. But um, I don't see, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about the crisis of science journalism. I don't really see it mm -hmm. here in Germany. I in, at my, in my newspaper, the science department, it's not being cut. It's We are not such a small department for normal mm -hmm. times. I mean, in normal times, we have like we, at the news, in the newspaper, there's one page uh, of science news every day. And on in the Sunday paper, we have three pages. And we are we have enough people to write really high quality stories for those pages. Now with the pandemic, of course, the demand is so much higher. And as I said, not everybody in the science department is specialized in infectious disease or epidemiology or virology. Of course, most people are not even specialized in, in, in medicine or health because we have somebody writing about physics, about anthropology, about other things, you know. So, but 
science is quite important in my newspaper, the science department, and we have we are not a small, very small department. And in other German newspapers, quality newspapers, I think it's the same. Also, there are some freelance journalists that are quite good. And we, our newspaper, our news organization is giving us the, the money to, to also buy articles from them. So it's not, I don't see this problem. I, I see it's more complicated. It's really that everybody wants to talk and write about the pandemic and the virus. And I think that's human and quite understandable. And so people also from other other journalists who are who don't, yeah, who are not science journalists are really have to be up to date to this. And pol and scientists who cover politics, they have to know or they have to try to know things about the virus and the pandemic because of course it's a political topic as well. And they have to talk to pol health politicians about this as well, you know. Mm -hmm. And Emmanuel, uh, you started, you're very active in communicating science. You've been at before in many different ways. Um, I know that. But uh, since the pandemic, you started your um, your Corona blog. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about your motivation behind it? And how is it going? Why did I feel it? Well, well I mean, it's a bit what, what Vipke said before, that um, this pandemic is... Um, has a huge influence on people's life. I mean, there is no absolutely no doubt about it. And I think the key feature of this pandemic is the um, insecurity that it causes because there is it's about the thing that we don't see, that we don't hear, that we don't smell, but that is like spreading, that is causing disease, that is um, uh, killing people as well. And um, there is absolutely no idea amongst us how this would develop. I mean, now we see a bit clearer, but when it all started in January, February, March, um, we had very little clues how this would develop. And I think uh, very few of the of all the prognoses that we had back then were, were actually true, but this is obvious. And so I thought, I mean, science kind of cannot tell people how to live in the end. But I think what science can do is um, supporting them in coping in a situation of extreme insecurity that we experienced back then. And then I thought, okay, I mean, since I'm anyway doing this science communication stuff since years, um, and we have these projects with coronavirus, with one of these harmless coronavirus projects ongoing with the, with the Christian Rossen Institute, I thought, okay, now uh, now's the time to... Um, make science communication useful in a very difficult situation. How, would, how is this being received? Did you get the angry readers as uh, Vipka sometimes get? Or um, how are the reactions to your blog? I'm very, very moderate and thankful, I would say. I mean, it's not like, you know, it's not a huge block or so. It's not uh, Christian Drosten. It's like millions and millions of of people hearing his podcasts and and hundreds of thousands of Twitter followers and and it's all over and and I mean you know compared to that and you know like of course my tweets occasionally get more than ten or twenty thousand impression which is very good and I have constant visits on my blog and and also likes and and shares on Facebook and whatever but it's not big so this is this I really have to say. And then on the other side, I then also don't reach 
or hardly reach into these very difficult kind of people that are on a very, very different line, like people that are like going to these um, rallies, like the last one in Berlin on, on um, recently end of August or beginning of August. I hardly get in contact with these people and also don't reach them. And even if I do, for example, when I had this article on the Welt um, website, which is kind of a bit where these people are kind of more often also commenting on, so I didn't get any or very few harsh or, or hostile comments. And so the everyday reaction is, is kind of interest and people are also grateful that I do this and I explain things. Uh, what I also have to, of course, admit a bit is I rarely like judge things. I rarely say, okay, now we have to do five days of quarantine or 10 days of quarantine. And I don't opinionate a lot. Um, I also retracted a bit from these like topics that everybody's talking about, like how infectious children are <laughs> or, or how, uh, whether masks now work or not. These are okay. also topics that I cover a bit less because everybody's talking about it. So I'm just before, mo focusing more on like on the biology, immunology of the of the disease, and this is also obviously things that are not as controversial because not everybody can kind of quickly join in with an opinion. Um, and I also explain, and this is perhaps okay. So I, I kind of avoid. I kind of I don't do so many so many of the controversial topics. But I always, and I think this is kind of what works well, is I transmit kind of how small the single steps are that science is doing at the moment, generally and also at the moment it's doing. I never, I would never claim something big. I say, okay, you know, there's this publication and how does it relate to, to the overall knowledge and the field? And what are the little things that it now contributes to our understanding? And this is perhaps um, taking up to what was said before. That's what we can also discuss a bit. Um, I think the science journalism is doing a very great job at the moment. And we can also see this that overall in, in, in many countries worldwide, I think the handling of the pandemic works pretty well. And um, so I think and, and science journalism does a very good and strong contribution to this. Perhaps the thing is that, um, and this is where it kind of, you know, like the big versus small step topic comes in a bit is that often, of course, in, sign, in, in journalism, it's the headline that counts, and that is also later criticized, for example. And headlines often make small steps that are perhaps um, brought forward in a preprint or in, or in a publication bigger than they actually are, because, and this is an intrinsic problem of headlines, of course, they can't put things into context. So, for example... Um, when we had this, I think this was now um, 10 days ago, so end of August, we had this uh, report about the reinfection case from Hong Kong. And this was a huge topic worldwide. And um, I also covered that immediately because I felt, okay, now this is, will be big and this a topic that everybody's interested in. But among all these headlines, what got a bit lost is that we have now like 18 million of SARS-CoV-2 uh, infections so far um, within eight months. And we have now this few cases of reinfection. How does this relate now to the size of the pandemic, these reports of the reinfection? And this obviously gets lost if you make a, 
And I mean, in the headline, that's the issue of the headline. In the headline, you have to reduce and say, okay, we have this reinfection case. But the headline cannot say there are now a few reports on reinfection on a background of almost 20 million infections worldwide. This is not a headline anymore. But I think this is where this, um, this is as an explanation where kind of the very small step of individual scientific contributions suddenly become bigger than they actually are. And if, if, I, may, uh, if I may jump in, um, something else got lost in the headlines reporting on this case. And it seems to me to be even more important. And it's that this man who was reinfected, um, he had, didn't have any symptoms. So he didn't get ill the second time around. So this, of course, got also lost in the headlines, and it's even more reassuring if people really read the story. I mean, but it's impossible to to resolve with a, with a headline. Uh, we explained this in the in the, in the in the story that we had about this reinfection case, and I think that many readers got this. Some readers didn't get it. So now they're commenting on other coronavirus stories. They're commenting, but there's already reinfection, so there's new, no immunity. So we try to explain again and again what this means. But of course, it's not it's not possible to put this in a headline, so it wouldn't be a headline. Mm. No, of course, and I think it's also not. We shouldn't make it more this this issue more problematic than it actually is, because I think it's not that people are too scared of such headlines. I mean, the people that are interested in, then they read the article, they get attracted by the headlines. And the people that are anyway at this moment or in this, that particular day, not particularly interested in reading more stuff about the coronavirus, just skip the news in a way. Yes. So um, we also shouldn't be like, say, oh, no, we shouldn't do headlines anymore and people are confused and so on. I think most people that consume media are actually quite competent in in. <clears throat> in receiving and reflecting on what is what is being written or said or shown. What about politicians then? I mean, I'm not going to mention the Mr. Trump, but uh, like in you general... Just, you just mentioned him. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Oops. What do you mean by that? Do you read behind the headlines? I hope so. <laughs> well, um, I mean, that's that, that's what I was, I'm kind of wondering. I mean, what do you think, what role does the um, science journalism and the scientists communicating directly have in forming policies? I mean, because that's where the politicians come in, right? Um, I mean, in a, in a more calm country, like in Germany, for example. Do you have... Um, Oh, I think it has a huge influence here in Germany. You can see this all with uh, Christian Drosten and his, his podcast. So uh, he just came back from a two-month break uh, on his podcast, and he had his first show uh, was aired. Or well, <laughs> aired is an old word, but uh, it came out this week. So he made some proposal about a shorter quarantine and in some cases when there was a cluster of infections. And this was immediately discussed by politicians, I mean by the media in Germany. And I had to do a story about this because everybody was so interested in, in this proposal. And it was, it is being discussed today by many politicians and institutions here in, in, in Germany. So it has a, a huge impact. But there is, there is this, this um, difference now because, I mean, um, 
So Emmanuel just said that uh, you are very careful not to make any judgments or recommendations, and you try to report on the on the little step, basically. While uh, Christian Drosten, who's also a scientist communicating communicating directly with the public, um, he does the judgments and the big steps. <laughs> he claims Wait, he claims that he doesn't make judgments, but I think he does. Yes. Yeah. I mean, so somebody also has to. I mean. Um... No, we cannot just all be sitting there in, in comfortable armchairs and saying, oh, yeah, you know, like the T cells and the B cells and say all these <laughs> things. Um, I mean, somebody has to step up and say, you know, like um, we have big issues, so we have to think big and make big steps. And I mean, Kiss and Austin is obviously in the position that he can do this, actually, because he has... Um, and this is the, the thing about Christian Drosten is not that he like looks good or, ha, or has nice hair or whatever. The thing with Christian Drosten, he has like 20 years of pandemic experience with virus pandemics. That makes him, that puts him in a position to be able to propose the big things and put what we experience now here in Germany into a global, into the global context of the past like 100 years of pandemic researches. Um, and, and of course, I mean, he gets a lot of blame and criticism, but also a lot of fame, and uh, this is all, all very good. Um, but I think what, what, what it boils down to a bit is that science communication in all its forms, being by scientists directly or by science journalism, also need to have a very wide and diverse range of voices, so to say, uh, a diversity of roles of people, of um, of communication styles, of messages, and so on. Mm-hmm. But of course, um, Christian Dawson is not the only scientist who makes ju- judgments and um, calls for action um, in the public. <laughs> uh, there are others um, criticized as well. Um, and I wonder, I mean, of course, he, I mean, I don't want to make this podcast about Christian Dawson, but um, I just find it interesting that um, this pandemic seems to um, justify, um, it's okay to 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 be Christian Dawson, so to say, to, to be there in the <laughs> public and, and not have like expert commissions uh, in the background somewhere doing something and then communicating to public, but just like going directly from science, from the bench to the public, basically. But that, um, that is what is needed now, and you see it in other countries as well. I mean, the most influential politician in Sweden is this epidemiologist at the moment, it seems, on the outside. And in, I think, in, isn't it in South Korea, where there's also an epidemiologist in a very important political role? I mean, it is what is, in a way, we need in this situation also. That some, as Emmanuel said, that some scientists have to step out of the laboratory, so to say, and communicate also with politicians and really think about policies and make policy proposals. So, Emmanuel, you're probably the wrong person to ask this because you are doing this already. But, um, I mean, the, the common kind of sentiment towards it from scientists um, is usually, but how do you find time to do it? And uh, it's really not my task and I have to concentrate on science and my career prospects are so gloomy anyways. And how can I do this? What do you think, Emmanuel? Do, do scientists really need to be more politicized? No, it's not that science needs to be politicized or scientists, but they just have to be aware that they play a political role in this, and particularly now in this entire setting, 
um, what a scientist like Christian Drossen says is in a way political because he influences policy. And this is perhaps like the thing where I think not everybody is aware of. And I think a good example for this is also Hendrik Streeck, because um, I think I have to, I think what the, the the criticism that Hendrik Streeck gets, because he's very kind of vocal and a bit of you know like he was put up of like, like as an anti Drossen and so on, and I think. The criticism that Hendrik Streeck got is not that he was political, because in a way everybody is who is communicating in the public. But I think the criticism that Hendrik Streeck got is because he is he pretend pretends more than others that um, he is not political, and I think that is the key issue. Um, Christian Drosten always says, you know, mm. like in the end, it's the politicians who have to decide. And I play a prominent role, but it's not me who decides. And this is actually true. It's uh, all these decisions have been there. You know, for example, we had this recently this Corona summit among the among the German federal government and the state governments, and they sat together and they came up with some decisions. And they were, of course, heavily influenced by Christian Drosten, by science journalism, by what Wiebke Hollerson writes in the web. <laughs> I don't but, think so. <laughs> yeah, don't underestimate yourself. <laughs> what, what other people write on Twitter and so on. But in the end, I mean, and I think this is also a reason why things go well in Germany. It's, um, in the end, political decisions are taken by the way of the political system and then put into action. And I think this is this is extremely from the outside, this process is extremely annoying and boring and stupid and everybody gets annoyed, but it works. I have to defend Hendrik Streeck on one thing. He also always said that he doesn't make any decisions, but the politicians do. He, he, used, <clears throat> he used exactly the same words, I think, but he was received differently and it's a complicated story <laughs> that we maybe shouldn't discuss here. So you both agree or um, you both mentioned that this pandemic is kind of a special um, situation. It's um, oh, a completely special situation. I mean, for everybody for feels everybody. this in his daily life. I mean, we can't pretend it's not. Definitely. I'm not. Uh, yes, <laughs> I'm with you on that one. No, I was just wondering more like the communication wise of the role of scientists, role of media, role of politicians. Uh -huh. um, it just became faster. But well, it will be over at some point, um, more or less, or at Hopefully. least or normalized <laughs> somehow, um, or a new pandemic comes. I don't know. But um, given, uh, if you assume that, you know, when the vaccine is there and mechanisms are in place and kind of everybody got used to the new conditions or something, it will kind mm -hmm. of yeah, normalize. I mean, you cannot be in the state of alert for the rest of your life. It's just <laughs> not happening. But, uh, I mean, we have something like the climate change crisis going mm -hmm. on. Why do you think, um, do you think that this could be all what we learned from the COVID pandemic? Uh, do you think we could apply this um, to the climate change crisis? Oh. I mean, like, like the, the lessons learned now. Which uh, lessons that... Uh, for, 
Hmm? That that uh, that the scientists need to communicate more. That they have to be aware of the role in the in the kind of political system and um, the uh, the role of um, journalists. Um, how we how we sift through information. Do you oh, think we, we can learn something? Problem in the climate change in the climate crisis or in the climate science. Um, we have like an opposite problem. There are some scientists who communicate too much in a way. We have some scientists, really popular scientists, have become really popular here in Germany. And it's really hard for us as science journalists sometimes to um, these these scientists, they seem to be activists already. I mean, it's really hard sometimes to deal with some of those climate scientists because they are way too politicized. They are not saying as Christian Drosten does. Okay, I only explain the research to you, and I may have some suggestions, but uh, politicians make their decisions, but they really push for certain decisions to be made. They really, some of them are really behaving like activists, and that's a little bit complicated for science journalists um, in this uh, situation. And other climate scientists are really um, trying not to be in the public eye at all because they don't like this game or they're afraid of this. So it's it's a really complicated situation with climate scientists, uh, I I feel, here in Germany because in part they're really politicized and really activists and out there all the time in public and others are like hiding behind their research and really don't want to be interviewed and don't want to talk about their their stuff that much. I wouldn't say we can directly learn something because it's so similar but i think what the pandemic did is that it showed us the mechanism of um, talking about science in public and how to transmit um, knowledge and evidence from science to policy changes it showed us how this works in like kind of in a fast forward um, mode and i think that was the really if we want to i would say if we want now to kind of learn something from um, about climate change policy stuff <laughs> and so on, then it's kind of this that we can say, okay, we have seen now the mechanisms evolving within weeks that evolved in the climate change uh, topic within decades. And <laughs> of course, it makes it much easier to study if something happens within five weeks because you don't forget so easily what it was like at the beginning and so on. That before the pandemic started, we really covered a l- we did so many stories about climate science and we still do a bit less now in the pandemic, but it was really the most controversial and topic and the topic our readers were almost most interested in. And <laughs> yeah, so it's, and we will be back on the speech, I think after the pandemic. Um, basically um, pretty much, the scientific world, as far as I can tell, agrees it's great to have preprints, this fast exchange of information. Oh, this... do they? I, I had the impression that some scientists are not as happy. No, nobody agrees on that, Luisa. Nobody agrees on that? Nobody some agrees people. on nothing. No, not I mean, everybody <laughs> agrees on this. <laughs> no, 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 the thing is what you have discussed relatively at the beginning, that like scientists change all the time their opinion. This is not true. 
usually scientists keep their opinion for a very, very long time and are very stubborn and very unlikely to, to be convinced by others. As for everybody, the problem is we have so many scientists, meaning that we have like all possible yes, yes. opinion available. And the same is true for preprints. I mean, I would say uh, everything can be extremely flawed and everything can be extremely good. I mean, many preprints are better than many, many peer-reviewed articles in all possible aspects. But on the other side, there are many preprints that shouldn't have seen the light of day. But this also, of course, I mean, you know, think of that Lancet scandal. I think one really should call it a scandal. These four people, these freaks who like put together this meta-analysis, which was completely flawed. And, you know, like one of the four authors was like a famous big shot heart surgeon from the University Zurich Hospital in Switzerland. And... uh, (laughs) The funny thing is, you know, like as a punishment for participating in this uh, in this despicable act of uh, trying to do science and publishing it in Lancet and then retracting it was that I think he had to serve some 30 hours of free work in the University of Zurich Data uh, Quality Assurance Center. <laughs> oh, this is great. It's amazing. This, this, is, is, this really is absolutely good. amazing. You know, like this is like Aww. if you, you know, like if you, if you, if you rob a bank, you have like, to do hundred hours of social services and and clean the parks. And if you, if you make some really serious scientific <laughs> misconduct, you have like <laughs> to, to wash the data. You have to <laughs> you clean, the data, clean the data. Statistics or <laughs> yeah, that would have been good if you would have gotten that. Um, no, but I mean, what I meant is basically, I think what everybody agrees is that science has to exchange, um, collaborate faster. So uh, preprint is just one means. I mean, preprint per se, could you could call it? I don't know, whatever. Uh, digital identifier yeah, well, whatever. but basically just a sharing of information uh, and this is one mechanism we have and I think that everybody agrees on that this is good that this is good as it is bad it's equally it's like 50% good and 50% bad um, like to, let's take an example I think we have seen many big bad things in this pandemic coming out of science and they're bad in terms of that they waste huge amount of resources and time and so on. One example, chloroquine. As you know, the chloroquine debacle started because some people used like this Vero, like a monkey cell line to test um, the, the propagation of the virus in these cells. And it actually worked in blocking the, the viral replication, these specific type of cells, these Vero cells. And it was not that they were like monkey cells or that were like uh, coming from the kidney or whatever. The problem was that in these cells, the virus enters in a different way into the cell than in most um, cells where it actually infects human beings. And the, and the cause of this like early on error, which was published in peer-reviewed journal, was that it was immediately taken up and like hundreds of, of clinical trials with chloroquine are going on. Among them, the, the German Ministry for Research um, recently granted 2.4 million euros for a clinical trial in Tübingen to test the effect of chloroquine. So imagine what better things one could do with 2.4 million euros 
in the current research situation. Um, and um, I think this is a bit the things that we have to talk about. And there, open data or, or open access or however you want to call it absolutely makes no difference. I mean, you can yeah. say it came out quickly, was bad. It, was, it didn't come out in open science, but on the standard peer review way. Um, mm-hmm. If it would have been a preprint, it wouldn't have been any better. Uh, it took very long kind of to to really convince people that chloroquine is not the thing. Yeah, whatever. Oh, maybe yeah, but, uh, but that's the... that wouldn't have been taken so seriously. Well, but... no, I, I mean, mean, nowadays also preprint, you know, preprints can be extremely good and be taken yes, seriously yes. if they are on the right track. The problem is, you know, like, about many things in in science, you only know whether they were relevant and good months or years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is independent of whether they have been immediately put out on a on a pre on a bio archive or, or med archive or so, or whether they have been hidden for for two years in a in a complicated <laughs> peer review process. You know, it absolutely makes no difference. Um, how something is, is published. It's good, this open science is good, you know, like I, because I'm always also curious and I want to know what other people are doing and then I can adjust a bit what I am doing myself in the lab. Uh, for that, it's good, but um, it doesn't, open science doesn't make a difference um, in kind of shape, uh, making the response to the pandemic better or worse. No, but o- this is overall, not... Overall speaking, you know, it can make it better mm-hmm. on some parts, and it can make it worse in other parts. This is why I said before, it's like 50% good and 50% bad. But uh, the discussion um, about quality of research, like which questions are being pursued, what is being funded, um, that really doesn't have anything to do with open science per se. It's just what safeguards we put in place, who is the gatekeeper, how does the information get out, um, the yeah, yeah, of ethics, the research integrity, I mean, the, all these questions. Yeah, yeah, behind this is of- very all true. You know, I just want to say, you know, open science or not is not like making, mm-hmm. making, making a difference. Okay. That is an insult to your podcast, I know, but I have to say this. <laughs> open science does make a difference. <laughs> No, yeah, I like open science. It's very good and it's very important. And um, sharing data is key. And there are many, many things. But, you know, we shouldn't like kind of come into the thing is, did now open science uh, make it easier to to combat the pandemic because also bad things came out of it? Yeah, Emmanuel, I mean, can I just ask you just a quick question? Of your, like, when you look at your working day, how much do you do research and how much do you communicate about research? I mean... It's been a blur a bit. <laughs> uh, I mean, I've now spent one hour, seven minutes and 29 seconds in this podcast. So does this count now? But I yes. did some other, I, I wrote That's some emails. Huh? Oh, you wrote some emails meanwhile. Okay. <laughs> That's what we're asking. Communication or is this research writing? Yeah, yeah, exactly. This is now research. Or, and, and, you know, like, so, for example, if I read a paper about which I hmm. write a short blog comment. This is now research or communication mm-hmm. because, I mean, I need to read, perhaps I need to read the paper anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I don't know. It's, it also doesn't matter, you know. Well, it does because that's, I mean, it does uh, because people usually say, I don't have time for this. 
for interviews. And I wonder how yeah. much, yeah, yeah, I mean, interviews are just like you're yeah, talking to, to journalists or writing a blog or tweeting or something. Yeah, yeah, but this is, you know, like, this is like if you ask a journalist, do you have time to reflect on your political role? And then the journalist would also say, no, I'm not political. Um, so, you know, the question is if it is a matter of time or, or, or willingness. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's always a bit both. Mm. Mm-hmm. And it's also, you know, like some people communicate and others don't. And I think in, in the end, it really doesn't matter. I mean, we really should, at some point, we should look back. Or perhaps you can already do this now and say, how did we do? And I think the reason would be pretty well. So like, so there are like two comparisons that I uh, heard so far. More is more a bit from me and more is some, one is more from somebody else. So like if you compare it to a soccer game, we are now entering the second half. And we we don't know whether we will have overtime. And on the other side, it's like the the thing is is like running a marathon, but you also run back. And we are now like approaching the the turnaround point. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We just have to be aware of this, you know, like it's not over yet. interesting to have a scientist and a science journalist together and I kind of wondered how your impression of how they saw science communication was. Oh I think they were totally on the same page Um, also I was on the same page somehow I think everybody's kind of on the same page as in um, you know when we need information like everybody's hungry for knowledge now everybody wants to know and everybody's turning to the outlets where they want to like where they can get knowledge right yeah and uh well so a science journalist is looking for information on what's new on the pandemic what's what's out there and uh well and the scientists the same also looking for the new information and the general public as well i think a lot of conversation was about curating information right so how do you find the the quality stuff, so to say, the good stuff, where is it? Um, and I think it's kind of clear that uh, we really have to be thinking, doesn't really matter if it's a preprint or peer review or whatever kind of social media, whatever kind of information outlet, uh, we really have to think about the quality somehow and find a way how to sift through this information. I really found it interesting to hear where science journalists are looking for information and that basically what they need is to actually talk to scientists. I remember when we did the school episode, the UNISTEM day, that's what teachers were saying as well. Yeah. They need scientists to kind of talk to and get the first-hand information or at least discuss what they read and kind of run this quality check. Um, I guess for the scientists is the same. Um, that's when they talk about the peer review. Uh, you know, it's kind of the the reality check, the quality check to like that someone else has also looked at it and can discuss and come draw your conclusions. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's a really interesting question of who who talks about science and who gets listened to about science as well. And one of the things that came out for me was kind of this. Um, issue of should scientists be political and scientists who perhaps say they aren't political but are very much influencing public policy and and political decision making um 
So yeah, it's 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 finding this quality information, and then it's also kind of that need to talk to scientists to verify that. But that's something I think that the politicians and people in power are also struggling with. They also need this information and they also want to have a direct line to scientists. And so the scientists who have that connection then have a, a, a huge responsibility put on their shoulders um, as to what science they listen to and what they then communicate forward. Um, so it's, it's, it's a really complicated situation where what you select and what you listen to and what you communicate uh, can have a, a big impact on the world you're living in. The, well, Wiebke was saying that, well, some uh, scientists are just too political and then they're just not really um, believable anymore because they take it up as a, you know, as a mission to, to do the politics with science. Yeah, they become activists rather than, yeah. rather than scientists. And I think... Obviously, objectivity is is not actually possible. It's uh, uh, something that scientists obviously try and, you know, uh, hold as a value, but no human is without bias. We're, they're inbuilt. It's just you've got to try and be aware of those biases. But, I mean, if you're actively saying, this is my position, then... You know, it's same as if it was on the right wing and, oh, uh, you know, a scientist who's like, no, I don't believe in climate change and I'm going to try and prove it doesn't exist. Both things are equally bad. I mean, the you know, and I think this is where the idea of scientists should be without politics comes in. Um, but it's very difficult when, you know, you're seeing an issue that you care incredibly passionately about and you're actually, you feel that you're trying to do good things for the world, but at the same time, it's in conflict with your role as a scientist. Well, I guess that's where the, the transparency comes in. Mm. It's really the key, right? Because if you're fully transparent and you do your still you do your science in an un, as unbiased way as possible, I don't think there's such thing as unbiased science. No. Uh, since it's done by people, but uh, you know, in this un as unbiased as possible way, then uh, it might be valid. But it's really difficult because, yeah, you, you know, this is the discussion we had already a couple years ago uh, in this March for Science movement, mm. where there was exactly the discussion about how political can science can or should science be. Right, and I don't think there was any conclusion at the end, but there was a general feeling of that scientists should do something. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, but um, yeah, it's difficult. Yeah, I, I really like what Emmanuel is doing. He's uh, he's doing his. Uh, I mean, he's blogging. Um, there's a very regular blog on Corona research, um, and he's looking at um, what's happening, what's being discussed, and just shows the the arguments without commenting on their, you know. Like, oh, I find it good or bad. Or yeah, something. exactly. Yeah, but it does kind of, yeah. I mean, what he said also that does not really reach the the person on the street. The, the yeah, magic. and sometimes, the, sometimes literally, yeah, even the literally the people on the streets, i.e., the people who are out, you know, protesting that COVID is a conspiracy theory or whatever other interesting ideas these these uh, people have. Um, so yeah, I think, um, yeah, he said, you know, obviously the people like that, they don't, he, he doesn't reach them at all. Um, and of course they're the very people that we, in an ideal world, 
like to be having a discussion with um, because otherwise it's, you know, as the, the phrase in English, preaching to the choir, you know? Mm. Um, yeah. But you know, not even Vipka reaches these people. I think. I mean, I think she reaches mm. kind of like intersection, maybe with uh, with this. I mean, this people. It also sounds like a label. Yeah. Um, no, but I mean, because she says she does get angry uh, letters to her newspaper about mm. some articles they publish, but it's still not really. I mean, you still have to. Someone who writes an angry letter, at least, is someone who's kind of willing to get into this writing of an angry letter and maybe get a response. Yeah. Um, Whereas there's in the hell another segment of people who just they're so convinced of what they're thinking um, that this is the right thing. Yeah, there's no not even an angry letter possible there. Yeah, so. yeah, but I mean, I I think so. I read something a, a long time ago, and it was I thought it was really interesting uh, about someone who had been um, basically a neo-Nazi person, and they had changed their mind, and what they said was help change their mind was not people who directly debated with them but like they'd be they'd see an article and they'd see comments and they'd see people kind of consistently and calmly stating you know a counter argument and that over time kind of had a drip effect where they slowly started to see okay who's the person who's just like kind of screaming and shouting and who's the person who's just you know, consistently saying these things and, and presenting evidence. And I think even though it can feel like you're just throwing stuff into a vacuum, into a, a pit, and it's just not going anywhere, I think there are people listening, even if they don't, they're not visible. So I think it is important to keep putting factual science out there and keep communicating science in its many different ways, that, you know, like Emmanuel is, um, and because is, uh, and then you know you might actually be reaching people you don't realize. Mm, yeah, I totally agree. Also, this shouting gets boring if, mm. after a while, I guess. Right? I mean, you're like, I mean, of course, you can uncover new conspiracy theories all the time, but at some point, it's kind of circular. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Let's not. Let's not. I mean, we could have a whole episode on just debunking. Yeah. Crazy, crazy theories. Uh, what Emmanuel said about scientists changing their mind and, and you know, people sort of make this accu accusations. Oh, these scientists can never make up their mind. It's always, you know, this or that or the other. Um, and actually, <laughs> it made me laugh that he said, that, well, actually, scientists do, don't change their mind. They're actually very, <laughs> very intransient and stubborn. Um, so, yeah. Um, uh, I once went to this conference and there was this um, old man um, in white socks and sandals and very vigorous. And I remember like, I mean, I was very fresh PhD students a long time ago. But I remember what he said was basically, well, the scientists rather use each other's toothbrushes than, uh, than take up the other person's name for their favorite protein. And oh, that was wow. really like, and so true. So, so true. you know, if you name a protein and someone else names this protein, you would never use the other person's name unless there's some kind of convention at the end. But yeah, it takes a while. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, I think I think that's one of the things that we forget. And I think it, it kind of comes into what the discussion that you had was, you know, scientists are human beings with flaws, with biases, with you know, uh, ambitions and, 
obviously, it's great to talk to scientists about their science, but we have to remember, you know, they're not perfect. And they, you know, we, we have to use our own critical thinking, um, you know, and not just kind of take uh, anything, anything that anybody says uh, with just as a belief, you know, just on faith. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a balance, I think. That's it for today. Thank you for joining. This podcast has been made possible by the European-funded project Orion Open Science. The show is recorded at Max Delbuck Center for Molecular Medicine. The music was written and recorded by Fabio de Miguel. Sound editing is done by Paula Oliveira. You can follow us on Twitter at OOSP underscore OrionPod or uh, write us an email to Orion at MDC minus berlin.de we hope you enjoyed the show and we look forward to joining you next time see ya bye